All right, I'm Dr. Eddie. Some of you may know me as the talking doctor. And if um, God can bring a donkey to speak, perhaps he can help me. Um, I've chosen, being that we're in kind of times of trouble right now, or at least relative trouble, I've chosen this passage from Luke uh, about peace. And so uh, with that, I'll start. Hear now God's word. This is Luke 19, 41 through 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So let's read the whole passage so we can get a little bit of a context of where this came. So this is Palm Sunday, where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and it begins with, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If, everyone, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord is in need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the court, colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God, with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let's pray. Thus far the reading of God's word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may know the things that make for peace. In Jesus' name. Oh, man, I was out of order there. There was one more verse, sorry. <laughs> for the days will come when upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the date of your visitation. Thus far the reading of God's word. All right. Oops should be like, it's like a word doctors aren't supposed to say, but I guess in this circumstance, (laughs) it's okay. Maybe I need my reading glasses. So in this passage, we see this major intersection of a whole variety of different biblical themes or various types and shadows and references to things throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Um, And um, this Word of God is an endless river of wealth for us, of of nourishment and refreshment for us. Um, One of the things that I do when I can't sleep at night is I'll put on some kind of teaching, you know, if my mind starts racing. And sure enough, this week I put one on, and it was about the relationship between Genesis 49, 
That's the, uh, the part where Jacob, who is now Israel, gives his blessings to the different sons. And he gets to Judah, and he said, Judah is a lion's whelp, and that, um, that the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, uh, neither the lawgiver from beneath his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations, and that he will tie his colt to a fine vine, and the, the fall of his colt to an even greater vine. Um, so here we see, you know, right at the beginning in Genesis, a reference that ties into what we're reading today. And then they went on into Revelation and talked about how in Revelation 5 it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah being the one that's worthy to open the scroll. And later in Revelation 7, it talks about how uh, there's a 144,000 or a fullness of the Jewish, the Jewish people, as well as a multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation that have come together to praise God. And in their hands are palms. Um, so everywhere from this Shiloh prophecy all the way to Revelation, we see this majestic interweaving of historical spiritual realities, which is a witness to Scripture's transcendent origin. The Westminster Confession says of Scripture that the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and the many other incompatible excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. But it doesn't stop there. In addition to this unprecedented unity, God tells us in advance how history will unfold. This gives us a clue about why they should have known the time of his visitation. God foretold them many, many years before. In Daniel 9, chapter Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, God gives a clear timetable of when the Messiah will come. And he does that by saying, in yet a future date, there will be an order to rebuild Jerusalem and start counting from that day. And if you count 69 weeks of Jewish calendar years, you'll come pretty close to the time and perhaps the exact date that the Messiah enters Jerusalem. Another theme is revealed in Zechariah 9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm going to skip over the part about how Jesus knew um, that there would be a donkey there waiting for him. I'll let you guys think that over. But the donkey is a picture of humility. Uh, and it's the theme of humiliation, exaltation that we see um, the, throughout the Bible. It's also this, the, the theme of a servant leader, that God is, that Jesus is a servant king that will be coming uh, on the donkey. Uh, we can read about that in Isaiah 42, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard on the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now pause for a moment. Could it be that we, the body of Christ, are servants of the servant king? And are we the ones that need to follow the same protocol? The passage that we read from Luke 19 has parallel passages in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. When you read those, you'll see a familiar yet somewhat curious word called Hosanna, which can be translated as please save us. When, G- when Christ's disciples are crying out Hosanna in the highest, we can understand that to mean please save us with the help of the Most High. Please note that the Hebrew name of the king on the donkey is Yeshua, which means God is salvations. God is salvation. Now, Christ's disciples are publicly pronouncing, which is something which is probably the most fundamental truth in all of history, and that is that the Messiah is here and he's going to bring salvation. Yet the big, the big tech censors of the first century, the Pharisees, demand that we keep our religions or religious beliefs to ourselves. Religion is for churches, and, and soon enough that may be too much. Um, we've built a really nice closet at our house just in case. Um, but the word of God and his decrees will not be thwarted. His word will accomplish what it pleases, and it will prosper that to which it was sent. The psalmist has, have foretold this event close to a thousand years before, and we read that um, as part of the introduction and call to the worship. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The stones themselves have spoken. There is no longer a need for a Jewish sacrificial system. There is no longer a need for a temple. God did a very good job of it. He had the Romans come in and tear down the temple. And now there's even a mosque put on it so that another one would be difficult to rebuild another one. Had the Pharisees and the people at that time understood Daniel 9 and Nehemiah 2, they would have known the time of his visitation. Had they understood scripture, they would have known the things that make for peace. By way of contrast, let's look at some examples of the opposite of peace. It's always worthwhile to look at the opposite of peace in order to understand what peace is. Um, By way of contrast, um, and see the consequences of rejecting the Messiah which is coming desolation and destruction. Uh, in Matthew 23, we read, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones and stone zones who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some 40 years later, during the siege of Jerusalem, things became worse than desperate. Um, They they had surrounded Jerusalem and have cut out any food or entry uh, into Jerusalem. Many people tried to escape. Things had gotten so bad. They thought, well, I'll take my chances trying to get out of here rather than stay in here and starve to death or be killed by my neighbors. Um, 
Some of them were crucified. They say that um, that there were so many crucifixions right at, around the uh, right around the city wall that they couldn't find. They ran out of spots to crucify and torture people. Many of the people thought they could bring their treasures with them, so they swallowed some of their gold. Well, word got out, and uh, the uh, the enemies of Christ, uh, the enemies of the Jews, uh, actually ripped them apart, looking for the gold that they had swallowed. Uh, on September 13th of the 81st year of our Lord, Titus, who had surrounded Jerusalem as a general, now emperor of the great Roman Empire, died of a fever at age 41. I wonder if Titus, had you known the things that made for peace, had you understood like the great, the great king before you, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does nothing, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among of the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Margaret Sanger was a self-declared eugenics proponent. She was responsible for founding what eventually became Planned Parenthood, and the subsequent atrocities need no further explanation. She died on September 6, 1966. Margaret, did you know that man was created in the image of God and that he was commanded to be fruitful and multiply? Did you not know that your racist and eugenic child sacrifice temples and the inner cities that welcomed you to commit murder would cause them to rot from within and drink the wine of the wrath of your fornication? After brutally oppressing his own people for 58 years, Fidel Castro died on November 25, 2016. At 90, he lived a long life. I wonder if he ever complicated how long his death would last. Did he not know that we were to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Did he not know that it is only God that gives us the power to gain wealth? You have left your country of virtual desolation, of endless tyranny, injustice, and poverty because you have set yourself up as an idol and you have sold your sons and daughters as prostitutes for perverts from every nation, had you even you known the things that make for peace. So whether you're a king or a politician or a CEO of a major corporation marveling at what great empire you have built with your own hands, do you, even you on this day, do you think you know the things that make for peace? Had you known you would not be renting the fabric that, perver- that, that preserves our God-given right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of virtuous and therefore flourishing life. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of tyrants and prototypes, what should we as Christians do? <laughs> Somebody like that, huh? First, we need to ask ourselves, do we know the things that make for peace? Let's spend a little time defining the biblical meaning of peace, then we'll explore how understanding of peace, how our understanding of peace relates to our understanding of freedom, worship, and flourishing. Finally, we'll explore 
uh, how we get there from here. So I've got this slide here, hopefully it comes up here, about shalom. And it, 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 uh, it includes peace from war, but it also includes completeness, safety, soundness, welfare, prosperity, tranquility, contentment, and friendship with God and neighbor. So for today's purpose, I'd like to stick with a broad definition that includes the lack of conflict and the establishment of righteousness and justice, leading to the realization of the biblical sense of flourishing. We don't need to go far into the book of Genesis to hear about flourishing and God's command to be fruitful and multiply. We hear it repeated with Adam and Noah, and later we see the promises of blessing through the covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David. During the reign of Solomon, we see probably what is the epitome of the physical aspect of the, of the uh, Old Testament political kingdom. But then we come to learn very quickly that the kingdom has been infiltrated by all forms of idolatry and neglect of God's precepts. We hear the psalmists and the prophets about the importance of righteousness and justice as the foundation of true flourishing. But somehow the message fell on deaf ears. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance." In Isaiah, we read, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead for the widow's cause. Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In these passages, we see a very sharp distinction between covenant blessings and cursings. Yet there was something missing in the Old Testament age that somehow kept people from applying what they had heard. But we see in Jeremiah 31 a promise of a new covenant. And we see later in Ezekiel 36 a promise of a better age where the people of God will be spiritually empowered to keep God's commands and enjoy the temporal blessings of peace and flourishing. And as we move into the new covenant age, we are given the Great Commission as a foundation of spiritual and cultural blessing. It begins with the acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. Then we are commanded to go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded. In the New Testament, we are told that God's witnesses will be given power to advance the kingdom, which then they receive from the Spirit. From Isaiah, we would understand that to mean the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, and the knowledge and fear of the Lord. 
We're told that the gospel contains the power of God to salvation and that the entire creation will be restored. As we move into the book of Acts, it begins precisely with the promise of the spiritually empowered witness spreading the word of God through the land. And as we read through Acts, we see this refrain that occurs several times. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And then later in Acts 12, we read that the word of God increased and multiplied. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And as we move on in Acts 9, we hear, So the church through all of Galilee, Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and it was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. So you might wonder, how did this all happen? Well, there's a couple of clues in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they de- the, the disciples, the new disciples, dedicated themselves to the teaching of the apostles. And later in Acts 19, um, Acts 20, Paul tells, tells the Ephesian disciples that he did not shun to teach them the entire counsel of God. As we move into the epistles, we see frequent references to grace and peace at the introductions, in the middle, and at the conclusions. So as we we explore this, uh, the meaning of peace, we need to ask, well, who do we have peace with? You know, where does this peace exchange take place? Um, First and foremost, we have peace with God. As fallen men, we're in rebellion against God, and all of our works are nothing but filthy rags. By God's grace, through faith in Christ, our relationship with God is transformed from enemy to disciple. Those who were spiritually dead are made alive, and those who are far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. At the community level, apart from a common trust in God's precepts and the spiritual strength to seek his will, we will struggle to keep peace with our neighbor. So we're looking at peace from a variety of different perspectives to get a thorough understanding of it, because I think it's quite important. There's also a different facet, and that is the peace that we get internally that comes through faith in God through Jesus Christ. We read in Philippians, it says, To be anxious, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not too much of a surprise that the very next verse tells us about, well, if we're seeking this peace, what should be we setting our cameras on or our lenses on? Do not be anxious. I'm sorry. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in these, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard, seen in in me practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
And yet there's another aspect of internal peace and comfort when we read about God's personal presence with us as we advance his kingdom. We see the promise of abiding presence when uh, Joshua tells, when God tells Joshua to be strong and to be courageous and not to be frightened or dismayed because the Lord our God is with him. We see the same words of comfort at the end of the Great Commission. And we also see in Romans 10, where Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, that the word is near us, it is in our minds, and it's in our hearts. Now, it's customary at Branch to quote either Calvin or Bonson, um, both of whom I read and thoroughly appreciate. Instead, today we have a quote from other than my wife, Alina. She is a diligent student of the word, and she has helped countless people navigate their trials in the current age. In reference to the idea of internal peace, she sent me a note this week. She says, peace is not the absence of problems, troubles, and conflicts. It is knowing that God is present and that he will equip us during our trials. As you can see, this idea of peace is a wonderfully woven fabric. And I'm going to help you all practice endurance because it you know, it says that in the last days it will not endure sound doctrine, so we're kind of on endurance training program here on peace, and I'm your coach. Um, so we can enrich our understanding of peace by considering the role of truth in a flourishing community. We saw in the opening narrative how Christ, Christ's disciples spoke the truth about who he is, namely the servant king who would bring forth salvation. We also see how the Pharisees tried to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. On the one hand, we have truth and salvation. On the other hand, we have deception and eventual destruction. We should take note that the pervasive encroachment of censorship and distortion of truth in our culture goes hand in hand with the loss of our freedoms. The freedom, the freedom to declare the truth in word and deed is a fundamental aspect of a flourishing society. And the censorship of the truth will lead us to nowhere but bondage and destruction. In John chapter 8, Jesus says it clearly and succinctly. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So another facet of shalom can be considered in the sense of worship. The, stone that, the rejected stone that has become the cornerstone of the new covenant spiritual temple is the word of God. Our worship of God is no longer limited by walls, but includes the daily pursuit of righteousness and justice, and therefore the pursuit of shalom. In every situation that God has placed us and positioned us, that is our goal, is to seek righteousness and justice. We gain the strength to pursue God's precepts and will both through the power of the Spirit and by abiding in His Word. Finally, whenever we encounter the term freedom, we need to ask, freedom from what? Consider the freedom from our limited understanding of reality. Consider the freedom from the deeds of the flesh and the ensuing destruction that comes from sin and deception. So before we move on, let's stop for a moment and summarize what we've covered so far.
First of all, it should be clear by now that Jesus, the servant king, is bringing salvation. He's highlighting the knowledge of the things that make for peace as being of utmost importance in determining whether we advance the kingdom or whether we face certain destruction and bondage. We have also looked at a richer definition of peace that goes beyond the mere absence of conflict, but also includes a state of righteousness and justice, freedom of speech, and comprehensive worship that is directed toward advancing the kingdom of God through flourishing of his image bearers. Now that we have a better understanding of the meaning of peace, we need to, uh, we need to ask, how do we come to know the things for peace? And in a single word, the answer is discipleship. Yes, the fulfillment of the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, it advanced through discipleship. And our exhortation for today is that we all need that we all need to be in the process of being discipled or making disciples. Last night I was practicing for this, and I had Melky and Zedek, the one, uh, Melchizedek, no, Melky and Zedek, the, the one-year-old twins in front of me, and so I was giving them my, practicing my presentation, and they both immediately fell asleep. <laughs> so I'm going to just go ahead and repeat what I said, just in case some of you have been drifting away. Uh, We all need to be in the process of being discipled and making disciples. Well, what does that look like? If you seek righteousness, you need to be be part of the process of being discipled. If you want liberty to speak the truth in love, go out and make disciples. If you want freedom to worship everywhere, we need discipleship. If we neglect such a great means of salvation, be prepared to see our communities surrounded, infiltrated, and destroyed by the enemies of God. So recognizing the importance of discipleship and the advancement of God's kingdom, um, we need to develop a better understanding what it means to disciple. From Matthew 28, the Great Commission, we can summarize that the first thing is the recognition of Christ's lordship and authority, and that we would be baptizing disciples with special attention to the members of the Trinity. Now, I'm going to stretch that verse, but I think what I'm saying is true. It may not be related to the verse, but uh, perhaps what we need to understand here is that the disciples of Christ need to be fully immersed in their understanding and commitment to Trinitarian theology. So one of my test questions for the elder thing was like, well, say something about the Trinity. <laughs> it's a nice open question. You can ask me about that question to answer. Uh, Jesus answered by exhorting, us, uh, by exhorting us to teach the disciples to obey everything that he has commanded. And we learned about the commands and how they apply in the word of God. So it's one thing to learn the commandments. It's another to understand, well, how do we understand this? command of the Sabbath, you know, how does it apply, are there exceptions to it, and, and so forth. And we learn that in his word. He concludes with the assurance that Jesus, the word of God, the one with all authority, will accompany us on our endeavors. Now, we just read that in John 8, Christ's disciples are those who abide in his word. Later in John 14 and 15, we hear that through abiding in God's word, and his commands that he abides in us. And the product of that 
is much fruit or, in a sense, flourishing. This mutual abiding is the example of the doctrine of union with Christ. And it relates to another important aspect of discipleship in that our union with Christ is best exemplified by our, our, uh, by, and best manifested by our union with the body of Christ. And although I'm all for independent Bible study, I'm also thoroughly convinced that it's within the body of Christ that the seed of the gospel can establish strong roots by way of rich understanding and application. The, the reward being an abundant flourishing. Go back and read Matthew's parable of the soils in Matthew 13. It's actually Jesus' parable of the soil. But anyways, so Paul sums it up better than I can in Colossians chapter 3. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, if you're paying close attention, I just mentioned that word doctrine. Now, in some circles, that may not be such a good word. It may even be a bad word. I remember I was in Haiti. Uh, we had this big cattle truck. It was a caged truck where we'd all go and go out to dinner or go to the, wherever we were going. And a friend of mine, who I love and I, 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 uh, I, uh, I respect, was talking about how discipleship, how doctrine is really not that important and that it's divisive. And so, hmm, I thought about that and being a fledgling uh, presuppositionalist at the time, I kind of thought, well, I think that's a doctrine. And it seems kind of divisive. Um, so the first idea is that we all hold doctrines. We have doctrines of everything. You know, you're, you may have, you even have a doctrine of heart disease. You may think, well, your doctrine of heart disease is that's something doctors should worry about. You know, and doctors have a doctrine, well, they should know heart disease really well, just in case somebody with heart failure shows up in your office. Secondly, doctrine is divisive but it's also unifying. God has been using sound doctrine to separate a people for himself. He does that through our beliefs or our doctrines about who he is, what he has done for us, and how we should respond. So it isn't whether we embrace indoctrination, it's whether we're, we will continue to be conformed by the indoctrination of the world or whether we will pursue spiritual transformation, unity, and peace by setting our minds of the things of the Spirit, namely the Word of God. In summary, I'm going to say like in summary a whole bunch of times here. <laughs> and finally, oh, in summary, learning and teaching sound doctrine is a central component of discipleship. But it doesn't stop there. We're constantly trying to organize our doctrines into a coherent system, um, into a, a coherent system that corresponds with the experience of our lives so that, so that just as we all hold doctrines, we all have a theology. We have a system of doctrines that relates to our lives. Many people think that theology is this dry academic substance and theology, at least according to John Frame, is the application of the Word of God by persons to every aspect of our lives. 
We are all theologians, and our goal is to be both hearers and doers of the word. Discipleship entails building up a sound theology. But theology isn't limited to be, isn't intended to be a private matter. Just as Jesus' disciples were publicly proclaiming what they believed to be true about the king who saves, just as the Pharisees tried to silence the disciples, the enemies of God will continue to try and silence us. They might say that your religious matters are private and we ought to keep our religious views to ourselves. Let that think in for a moment. If you're a fledgling presuppositionalist, you might say, isn't that a belief about what we ought to do that is being expressed and imposed on someone else? Aren't matters of what we should or ought to do part of a moral and therefore religious system? This brings me to our final point. True, since true discipleship brings us to the development of an engaging theology, a, a, a theology that engages the culture, and a theology that politely challenges the unbeliever's hidden, irrational religious commitments, both in word and deed, the, pri- the process of discipleship must prepare us to be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. This is an exhortation for all of us. Although we are seeking peace, we will continually engage in the battle of ideas. It is a battle which we have been given resources to cast down every argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is a battle that we engage in our minds with every idea that's coming at us from the community. It's a battle that we engage in our church community when we have to defend it against false doctrine. And it's a battle in the community around us. So now in case you missed something that I said during, during this talk, I'll give you a summary. In Luke 19, Christ enters Jerusalem as the king that will bring salvation. He points to a major and a recurring fork in the road of history. You either know the things that make for peace, and you advance the kingdom of God and shalom, or you don't. If you suppress the truth, the truth of God, if you set your, set your hopes on someone or something other than the Messiah, be ready to see your community surrounded and destroyed. God has given us clear orders now on how to advance his kingdom. We're to go out and make disciples of all the nations. The process of discipleship requires a purposeful and systematic teaching and application of sound doctrine. The process of discipleship includes the development of a comprehensive, engaging theology. Finally, the, the process of discipleship should include learning a coherent and powerful apologetic. So let us pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to address your servants. Um, please give us all ears to hear uh, and eyes to see. Uh, help us gain the strength and knowledge and desire to go out and make disciples. In Jesus' name.